The scripture for this morning's sermon is from Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, we do exalt you. We exalt your great and gracious name for being a God of life and being a God of grace. Lord, you are a holy God. You are a righteous God. You are a perfect judge. And you would have been perfectly right to condemn humanity, even to destroy humanity and to have nothing to do with us forever. You would have been perfectly satisfied in yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever. But you are a gracious God. You are a merciful God. You are steadfast in love. You are slow to anger. And so you have decided to lavish your grace upon the earth. You have decided to build for yourself a people and to plant and root us in all kinds of places in this earth for the glory of your name. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you are doing. And we pray, Father, with all of our hearts, we pray that you would help us now to see a deeper, greater, stronger vision of who you are and of what you're up to in the world. And I pray that you'd give us passion and desire to want to be a part of what you're doing, Father. And I pray that you would give us all the resources we need as a church and the unity we need as a church to go forward in the way that you're leading us now. Father, we love you for how you have led us over the last 11 years now. And we thank you for what you will do in the coming years. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. My wife loves to plant things. And if you know her, you know that about her. And she also loves to transplant things. She loves to multiply plants. Trust me, come to our house and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. And she loves to give these things away. She loves to share the joy with others that God has shared with her through the process of planting and growing and splitting and transplanting and all that stuff. So over the years, I've learned a few things about plants. Simple things, but important things. One of the simplest and most important things I've learned is that with a plant, there are things you can see and there are things you can't see. When you look at a plant, you see the plant itself, you can see the pot in which it's planted, and you can at least see the top of the soil, right? But the thing that you cannot see is what's actually most important about the plant. The actual center of the life of the plant is, is invisible to us, to the naked eye at least. It's underneath the soil. The most important thing about the plant is the root system, and that root system is where the life is at, right? It's the difference between a, a green thumb and a black thumb. The green thumb knows how to get to the roots. The black thumb, which I have at least one of those, perhaps even two, does not know how to think like a root and get to the roots. Turns out when a plant is put in a pot and is treated well by a person like my wife with at least two green thumbs, maybe three or four, 
it begins to prosper and grow. And, and, and unseen to the eye, the roots are growing outward and they're growing downward. And it comes to a place where the roots hit the side of the pot and they hit the bottom of the pot and then they begin circling in on themselves, right? And if a, pot is le- if a plant is left in that condition for too long, it will, it will keep circling in on itself and it will become what they call root bounds. When a plant is root bound, it'll become sick. It can even die over time. Usually not quickly, but usually by a slow process of attrition, it will actually die. Oddly enough, there are a few plants that actually grow better in a root bound condition, but there are hardly any of those. Most plants need freedom for their root systems to grow. And this calls for a lot of wisdom because there are plants, when you look at them from the outside, they look like they fit in their pot just fine. It looks like from the outside, like this plant could exist in this pot for a long time. But underneath the surface, unseen to the eye, there are roots that are stretching to grow out and to grow down. And if the keeper of the plant doesn't see that and have wisdom and transplant that thing, it's going to get root bound and it's going to slowly get sick and, and possibly even die. I think that this is a great metaphor for the life of glory of Christ fellowship right now. By the grace of God in Christ, we were planted 11 years ago now. It seems like last week we celebrated 10 years. It's now 11 years that we have existed. God has been gracious to us, and he has put us in this pot called the Hanke Center and this little office down the road in a few of our homes. That is the pot in which we have been dwelling. God has been good to us. God has been gracious to us. And it might look like on the outside, like the the visible part of glory of Christ could easily continue to fit inside this pot. We could easily continue to grow in this pot. We'd be fine here for years to come. I think that the truth of the matter is that underneath the surface where the eye cannot see, the root system of this church is vibrant and alive and desiring to stretch out and to stretch down. And we need more room. We need, a, we need to be transplanted into a place where we can have 24-hour access, seven-day-a-week access, 52 weeks a year access to a place so that we can prosper and grow to the glory of Christ. And I think that if soon we're not transplanted into another place, we're going to become root-bound. We're going to get sick. And I don't think we die a quick death, but I do think it's possible that without being transplanted, we'll die a slow death of attrition. I've seen it happen to other churches, and I think it could happen to this one as well. But if by the grace of God and by the power of God and the wisdom of God, we're taken out of this pot of the Hanke Center in our little office in a few of our homes and put into a place where we have more space to, to, to spread out our roots and to deepen our roots, I think that even visibly, the church will grow. The church will bear much more fruit for the glory of God and the other and, and the good of others. I believe that we have come to a time after 11 years of being here where it is time for glory of Christ fellowship to be transplanted. Now, the soil in which this church lives is not the Hankey Center or any other building or any other property we would ever acquire or possess. The soil in which we live is the rich soil of the love of God in Christ. And that is the richest soil in heaven or on earth. And no matter what the external circumstances of our church or any true church, we ought to rejoice that we know Jesus, that we are rooted and planted in the love of God in Jesus, and that we will be one with him forever and ever. The soil is much more important than the pot in which it's planted. Can I get an amen to that? And we rejoice in the soil. The soil is rich. It will never get better. Our perception of it will grow, but it itself cannot get richer. 
And so we ought to rejoice in that. But again, I want to suggest to you that I think the time has come for the soil of this little church to be transplanted from one place into another. And so I want to talk with you for a little while about the nature of this soil in which we dwell. I want to take, talk with you for a little bit about the kind of vision I think Jesus has of his church and what he wants us to be here in the Elk River area and perhaps even beyond. And so I want to begin by reminding you about what we talked about last week, and I'm going to go on for that, about that for a little while. Please be patient with me about that. I want to make sure I bring us fully into the, the frame of mind that we were in last week. And then I want to talk to you about what happens when people in a consumeristic culture come to the cross and experience the life-transforming power of God in Christ. I want to talk about what happens when consumeristic people are planted into the rich soil of Jesus and what that implies for the life of the church. So as I shared with you last week, our culture is a consumeristic culture. This is the soil in which we live from a cultural point of view. We are consumers. And this label of consumerism is not just about what we do. It's not just about our behavior of buying things and experiencing things. It is actually central to our identity. In a truly consumeristic culture, people discover themselves and maintain their sense of self by what they purchase and what they experience. And as the prominent sociologist Zygmunt Bauman, if you've got a name like that, you have to be a scholar of some sort, and he is a sociologist, And he says that in a culture like this, the way people feel alive is by getting new things and experiencing new things. But when the luster of that begins to die down, there's a kind of death that happens. They die a kind of death. And these are his words, not my words. He said the only way for a person like that to be born again is to buy something new and experience something new. Welcome to consumeristic culture. I consume, therefore I am. I find my sense of self, I maintain my sense of self by getting new things and experiencing new things, especially with regard to other people. This is a very, very brief summary, a very brief snapshot of what it means to live in a consumeristic society. And from the first day that I went away this summer to work on my doctoral dissertation, one thing that grieved me and gripped me so deeply is that broad swaths of the evangelical church have not have chosen not only to speak to this culture, which we have to do, but they've chosen to embrace this culture and actually to be on the cutting edge of this culture and to press and advance consumeristic culture in this world. It is no exaggeration to say that some of the leading lights of the evangelical world are actually on the cutting edge of consumer culture. I don't remember the number, and I don't want to make the number up, But I remember a few years ago being just this side of shocked when I heard about the number of PhD dissertations that have been written about churches like Willow Creek Church in Chicago and Saddleback Church in Southern California and many that have come out of that movement, not by theological schools. There have been many theological dissertations about these churches, but I was shocked by the number of dissertations that have been written by the most prominent business schools in our land about these churches. Why are business schools writing dissertations about churches? I'll tell you why. Because they are literally on the cutting edge of consumeristic culture and pushing it farther. They're not just speaking to culture. They've embraced it. They've embodied it. They've become it. They're advancing it. This is deeply, deeply grieving to me, beloved. And here's why... It grieves me so deeply. The consumeristic culture does not simply appeal to itself, to the self, 
Consumeristic culture is centered on the self. It's idolatrous. It says life is all about you. It puts you in the center of everything. And I think that the seeker-sensitive movement very quickly became the seeker-centered movement. They went from having a heart to be sensitive to people who are seeking the things of God to actually centering everything they are and everything they do on the seeker so that basically they're just selling religious goods and services to people on their terms so that they buy the products. And, and in some sense, I literally mean buy the products. Billions of dollars have been made off the product of the seeker-centered church. Trust me, I'm not exaggerating about that. It's become a, it's become a money-making machine. And I'm certainly not saying that every leader of it is just out for money. I'm just telling you that it is not only embodied consumeristic culture, but it is advancing that culture. And it is inherently idolatrous because the self is right at the center. We're not telling people anymore that God is amazing. What we're saying is, hey, listen, we know that you think life is all about you. You've been trained this way. And when you come here to church, we want you to know something. We have good news for you. God, too, is all about you. In fact, God did everything that he did just so that he could save you. You're that amazing to God. Life is all about you. As it turns out, God is all about you, too. This is the subtle but powerful and persistent message of the seeker-centered church. And the, the massive, tragic problem with that is that it is the polar opposite of the biblical gospel. That's the problem is that it's opposite of what Jesus said. The gospel that Jesus preached, the gospel that the apostles preached, the gospel that the early church and the faithful church throughout the ages has preached starts in exactly the opposite way. It starts with a massive confrontation of the self. Here's what Jesus said. These were some of his first words after coming out of the desert. These were some of the very first words of his public ministry. Mark 1:15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As I said last week, the word repent means to turn from one thing to another. And in this case, what's being said is you must turn from yourself and toward God. And unless you think that he's really saying, no, turn from your sin toward God, I would just suggest to you that those are two ways of saying the exact same thing. Augustine taught us many, many years ago that the nature of sin is when our affections bend from God back in toward ourselves. We were designed to live a God-centered life, but when our affections bend back into ourselves, this is the nature of sin. This is the nature of pride. All sin is about the self. The call to repent is to turn away from the self and toward God. The clear implication of Jesus' words, beloved, is that unless a person turns away from themselves and toward God, they cannot believe and they cannot be saved. And I mean the word cannot in the strongest possible terms. You cannot remain centered on yourself and also find life in God. You cannot. Of course, the only way that a person can hear the gospel, even hear it at all, is by the grace of God. If it wasn't for the grace of God, the words repent and believe would never even hit your ears. The only way a person could hear that message and say, whoa, I gotta wake up and I gotta turn. The only way that's ever gonna happen is by the mercy of God moving on the human heart to cause it to come back toward God. I am well aware that if God does not work on the heart, the heart will never turn toward him. 
But I want to encourage you to read the Bible and notice something, that all of that is not explained when Jesus preaches the gospel, when the apostles preach the gospel. They just preach the message. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. And then they know, as it says in Acts 13, that everyone who is appointed to eternal life is going to turn. They're going to believe. But please, please, please do not miss this point. I feel, you know, Jonathan Edwards, he's so famous for being a a revivalistic preacher, so many people coming to Christ under his ministry. You know who he was mainly preaching to? Most of the people who came to Christ under his ministry were people who went to church every single Sunday. He was preaching to people who thought they were Christians and were not because they basically were still living self-centered lives and Jonathan Edwards just pled with them in these kinds of words. Beloved, you must turn away from yourself in order to be saved. You cannot live a self-centered life and also be saved. You cannot. The gospel of Jesus is a fundamentally positive message of hope and of life, of eternal life. The good news of Jesus Christ is that even though God would have been righteous to judge us, to condemn us, even to destroy us because of our sin, he instead decided to lavish his grace upon humanity and make a way for us to be saved. He wanted to make a way for our sins to be forgiven so that we could be reconciled to him and have eternal life with him to be enfolded into the very love of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit forever. That is the most positive, life-giving message you can imagine. But it must begin with this idea. You are not amazing. And I am not amazing. God is amazing. And the only way to be saved is to turn from your very unamazing self toward God, whose grace is astounding and whose glory is truly amazing. The gospel must begin there, and it must press on from there. To live as a people of God is to live as a people centered on God and not centered on the self. Now, that is a very long recitation of my sermon last week. I almost I'm sneaking two sermons in this week. I basically just re-preached what I preached last week, but I felt it important that we get inside this mindset because now I want to talk with you about something, namely what happens when consumeristic people come into the presence of Jesus? What happens when consumers come to the cross and experience the life-transforming power of Christ? What happens to them? What transpires in their lives? And I have three things to share. There are 300 things we could share, but three major things, and I do think these are the major things. First of all, when consumers come to the cross, they become worshipers of God rather than lovers of self. This is the first and most massive transformation that happens, and I tell you, this takes a massive soul transformation, where you become worshipers of God rather than lovers of self. When consumers experience the transforming grace of God toward Christ, they learn the joy of living for him rather than for themselves. And when I say that they become worshipers, I don't mainly mean that they become people who sing songs and write poems and paint paintings and otherwise express their love for God. Oh, they certainly do that. And the history of the church shows that lovers of God must sing his praise. But mainly what I'm saying is that people who turn and worship God They're people who listen to the Lord carefully, who seek to understand the Lord, who surrender their lives to the Lord, and then who follow after the Lord. To be a worshiper is to live your life submitted to the Lord, 
A life given to God is a life of worship. Praise is a part of that, but it's not the heart of that. Admiring God is a very good thing, but it's not at the heart of worship, that's for sure. Respecting God is a very good thing, but it is not at the heart of worship. Even expressing praise to God is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a thing that a true worshiper cannot even hold down. But it's actually not at the heart of what it means to be a worshiper. At the heart of what it means to be a worshiper is to be someone who listens to their heavenly Father, who values what he has to say, who surrenders to his will and to his ways, and then follows by his grace and by his power. Worship is about a life lived before the Lord. When consumers come to the cross, they transform from being people who listen to their own desires and live for their own desires into being people who seek to understand God's desires and live for his desires by his power. When consumers come to the cross and experience his transforming grace as they begin to live in this way, they discover that true joy is found not in getting new stuff and always having the latest new experience, but true joy is found in simply knowing God. Knowing God. When the Apostle Paul went out into the world, he turned away from himself and toward the Lord, began to be satisfied in God. He went out into the world to preach the gospel. And you know what they did to him? Many things, but a couple times, They took his freedom away from him. They took all of his things from him. They put him in cuffs. They threw him in jail and imprisoned him there along with some of his companions. And what did they do when they were put in prison? Were they sad? Did they sink into depression because they lost all their things and couldn't go see the latest show or have the latest experience? No, they sang praises to God. They worshiped God aloud. So much so that their praise actually ended up in other people coming to know God. It's like, this is insane. How could you be put in prison and be happy? Well, the reason they can be happy is not because they're in prison. Prison is not good. The reason they can be happy is because prison showed something. That they possessed something in Christ that could never be taken away. As Paul later said, oh, you can bind me, but the word of God cannot be bound. God cannot be bound. And Paul and his companions knew that their life was in God and not in their circumstances, and so they rejoiced. This is what happens to a consumer when they come to the cross. They're free. They're free. I don't need the latest thing. I don't need to be part of the latest trend. I don't need to go to the latest show. I might, but I don't have to. I'm free. I'm free. My joy is in God. When the early Christians joined the apostles in preaching the gospel to the world, the author of Hebrews tells us that they were shamed for what they were doing, and in their culture, to be shamed was a big deal. It meant pretty much that you're excluded from the normative life of the culture. It says that their possessions were confiscated, and some of them, too, were put in prison. And yet, the author of Hebrews said, you all rejoiced in this. And he said that the reason they rejoiced is because they knew they had a possession that was better and more abiding. They rejoiced because they knew God. And because they knew God, because this was the rich, rich soil of their lives, beloved, they were free from self so that they could have joy even when they suffered. There's nothing inherently good about suffering. Suffering just does something. It proves. It proves the depth, the reality, the power 
of what God has given to us. Beloved, this is the transforming power of God in Christ. This is what happens to self-centered people when they come to the Lord and orient themselves around Him. Now, since the heart of being a worshiper is about listening to the Lord and understanding His will and ways, and actually following him, since that's really what's at the heart of it, not on the side, but right at the heart, since that's true, then this puts a premium on the word of God in the lives of his people. True worshipers put the word of God at the center point of their life. The voice of the Lord to the people of God is the most prominent voice in their lives. True worshipers have to listen to their Father. They have to understand the will and ways of their Father. And surely, the Lord speaks to His people by His Spirit. But the main way that God speaks to His people is through His Word. So anywhere you see the true people of God taking root in this world, you will see that the Word of God is very prominent. It's very prominent. It is the primary way by which God shapes His people into His image. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians 4, I want to just read a couple verses with you about the effect that this has on the people of God. I want to talk with you for a few minutes about the prominent place that the Word ought to have in our lives together. So Paul wrote this in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. And he, meaning Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers, that shepherd teachers are referring to pastors like me, that those should be understood really as one term, shepherd teachers. He gave all these people to do what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. Both of those things are really important. Truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Beloved, this is God's vision for his church. This is his vision for his people. What he sees is a people who are rooted in his love and put a premium on his word and are being shaped into his image by the power of his spirit. That's what he sees. The world and the flesh, you know what they want for us? They want us to remain in infancy. They want us to remain like children because children are vulnerable. Children can be persuaded. Children can be manipulated. Children can be sold products. Children can be wooed into things that mature people cannot be wooed into. The world and our flesh even wants to remain in infancy. God has a better vision for us that we would grow up into full adulthood and not just any adulthood. He wants every single Christian on this earth to grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If you understand what that means, I would love for you to tell me because I don't totally get what that means. All I know is that my Father in heaven wants me to grow up and be like Jesus. That's what he wants. And he wants me to do that so that I'll know him and love him and have joy in him and so that I will be stable on this earth 
and when winds of doctrine come about, when people are trying to teach me things that are not true and persuade me to live ways of life that are not pleasing to God, I'll be, I will not be so easily pushed over. But I, along with my brothers and sisters in Christ, will be able to stand because the body ministers to the body. The body together grows up into the fullness of Christ and we, we, we become the fullness of the church that God wants us to be. And so with that, let me just ask a simple question. What does God call the church to be? There are many folks who are growing huge churches right now, and I tell you, with, with grief in my heart, not with arrogance in my heart, that some of them are going to hear those horrible words where Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of evil. I never knew you. Because there are people doing things in the name of Jesus, but not at the command of Jesus. What is the type of church Jesus commands us to build? Well, I would tell you, first of all, it's the kind of church that is built upon his word. In Acts chapter 6, very early in the life of the church, there were significant pastoral problems in the church. The people came to the apostles, and the apostles basically said, listen, these things are important, but you have to appoint other leaders to deal with these issues because we must focus on two things and only two things, prayer and the ministry of the word. We must be leaders who pray for the people of God and pray for the lost, and we must be leaders who preach and teach the word inside the church and outside the church. Our lives must be about nothing but prayer and the word because that's the heart of the church, beloved. The thing that makes up the nourishing soil of the church of God in Christ is this combination of prayer and the word as the Holy Spirit ministers to the people of God in the name of Jesus Christ. We must be a church that's all about the word, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequences. Someday, I'm gonna have to look Jesus straight in the face and answer for what has happened in this pulpit. Trust me, I feel the weight of that more than you will ever know. And I'm okay with that. But what I have to be able to say to him is, Lord, I was flawed in so many ways. I was not even near the preacher that I wish that I was. But this I did, Lord. I tried with all my heart to steward your word and to preach your word with integrity and excellence and passion all the days that you gave me in that place. That I want to be able to say to Jesus. And I'm okay, my soul is at peace if I'm able to say that because the Lord says my word must have a prominent place in the life of my church. When the Apostle Paul was training other people to be pastors now, not just to share the gospel, but to actually raise up, he set Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in an island called Crete so that they could lead those churches and develop other pastors. He wrote to them, Three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and he told them how they ought to conduct their ministries. Let me just read to you a litany of his commands, and I put these up here so that you could follow along. These are among many things Paul said to them. He wrote to Timothy first, therefore an overseer, which is the same as being a pastor. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. There are 18 or 19 traits that Paul lists there that elders have to at least have their, their lives arcing toward those things in order to be elders. They don't necessarily have to be perfect in all of that, but this needs to characterize their lives. Out of all those things, there's only one thing that has to do with skill in ministry, only one thing. Elders must be able to teach. Why is that? That's because their job in the church is to make sure that the word of God is prominent in the life of the church. 
They have to make sure that the people at least have the chance to see the beauty and wisdom of God and choose for God. Pastors cannot force people, and they should not coerce people to do this. It's not possible for love to work that way. But pastors will answer to God for preaching the word of God to the church of God. And so Paul says to Timothy again, command and teach these things. In other words, teach with authority. Teach and urge these things, Timothy. Passionately plead with God's people to love God's word and to live by God's word. And then he tells him in 2 Timothy 2, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must not be a guy who loves arguing with everybody. But let him be kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil. The evil he's talking about there is not random evil. If you read 2 Timothy chapter 2, you'll see that there were people rising up to complain to Timothy about his teaching ministry. They wanted Timothy to move. They wanted him to turn. They wanted him to change. And Paul said, no, stay the course, Timothy. Press on. Maybe some other time we can talk about this, but Timothy was near to quitting. He was ready to give up. And Paul was saying, don't do that, son. Press on, press on, press on. Teach, 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 teach. Be kind. Be patient. Just endure what you have to endure. But this one thing you must do, Timothy, you must teach the word of God. Paul then said to Titus, he, the elder, the pastor of the church, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, central to his obligations, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Pastors must teach the word of God. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, if you can, please turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. I just want to read a few more verses with you. These are probably the pinnacle of what Paul has to say to Timothy and to Titus and by extension to all pastors throughout time. I wrote an entire book based on these five verses. I think this is one of the most powerful statements in the Bible about the nature of ministry in the church. I charge you, this is 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. With all that in mind, Timothy, I have something I need to say to you. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove people, rebuke people, exhort people. Clearly the implication is by the word of God with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Just tell us what we want to hear. Tell us what we want to hear. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. They will be lost. As for you, Timothy, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, many things could be done, but this thing must be done. You must preach the word in season and out of season. And beloved, I think that that is a word to all pastors and therefore it is also a word to all Christians. A little bit of a, a, a breaking news here for you. Jesus has not called on pastors to grow churches. You show me one verse in the Bible where Jesus ever commanded a man to go grow a church and I'll believe you, but I have not found it yet. I don't see any command for a pastor to grow a church and certainly there is no command in the Bible for a man to build a platform for himself and to make a name for himself in the name of Jesus. 
But God has called pastors to preach the word to his church. And God has called on all believers to be consumers of his word rather than religious goods and services. God has called on all of his people to listen to his voice and to follow in his will and ways, to turn away from themselves and turn toward their Father and learn together to walk in the things of God. Beloved, this is what it means to be worshipers. We might love it when the songs make our hearts fly, I sure do, but we can't live for those experiences. The heart of being a worshiper is living together by the word of God is very plain, it's very simple. Second thing that I see that happens when consumers come to the cross is they become contributors rather than becoming, remaining as consumers. Consumers are all about themselves. Christian people become about God. Consumers think about how they can feed their desires and how others can work that way too. Christians think about how they can fulfill God's desires. Consumers think about how they can use others to get their way. Christians think about the interest of others and not only to the interests of themselves. Christians look at how they can be like their father and lavish love upon other people. When a person experiences the transforming love of God in Christ, they learn that life is not found in consumption, but life is found in contribution. Life is found by receiving the love of God and overflowing with the love of God to other people. People like this, as their hearts begin to transform, they come to church with different questions. Instead of coming and saying, what am I gonna get out of this? They come and say, what can I give to somebody else? Instead of coming and saying, how are other people gonna bless me today? They come and say, is there any way that I could bless anybody today? Is there any way I could pray for someone? Is there any way I could lift the load off of someone? Is there any way I could encourage someone? Is there some way I could contribute to the worshiping life of somebody else today? A true Christian transforms from a consumer into a contributor. Their whole mindset changes, beloved. They're not centered on other people. They're centered on God. But because they're centered on God, they're able to give. And they find joy in giving. So Paul taught us, this comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He taught us that the Holy Spirit of God himself gives gifts to every single believer without exception. And he does this by his own will to each single individual. It actually uses those words. God has his mind on individuals but he gifts individuals so that they can contribute to the body. He gives you passion, he gives you power, he gives you ability, he gives you eyes to see other people, he gives you a heart to be like him and overflow, and he helps you come deep, deep into the joy of giving. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive, and trust me, that is not like some simplistic financial principle. That is a life principle that says it's better to be an overflowing river than to be a reservoir. Consumers are reservoirs. Christians are overflowing rivers by the grace of God. Now we're gonna talk about this at a lot more length next week. I wanna give the whole message to our life together next week, so I'm gonna leave it at that. But I do want you to ponder that. A great transformation happens when a person comes to Christ. They become God-centered, they become other-oriented. They do still have needs, needs that need to be met, but they're looking not only to their own interests, they look at also to the interests of other people, and there they find much, much joy. So, third thing. When consumers come to the cross, not only do they become worshipers and contributors, 
but they become ambassadors of Christ in the world. When consumers come to the cross, over time, their heart begins to be moved by the things that move the heart of God. As they get to know their Father, they come to value what their Father values. And one thing that the Father values is the preaching of the gospel everywhere in the earth. One thing that moves the heart of God is the eternity of humanity. God has chosen for himself some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will come to him and know him and live with him forever and ever. And God has sent each of his people into the world to preach the gospel so that those people will believe. And I think when a person comes to know God and gets near to the heart of God, Being an ambassador of God to unbelievers is not something that they experience as a burden, but something they experience as a privilege. I remember when I first came to Christ, I had such passion for other people to know him. I actually risked my life to take the gospel with my pastor to the homes of drug dealers and drug addicts. One guy, I just remember, who actually did pray with us to receive Christ, he had just gotten out of prison that day, came over to another friend of ours' house. They were sitting in their living room, cutting up drugs, getting ready to get high, and me and my pastor show up and say, hey, you want to hear about something cool? Jesus. That guy bowed his heart before the Lord that day. I risked my life. I don't know what would have happened to me that day, but I wasn't there because I was supposed to. I wasn't there out of obligation. I loved my friends because I wanted them to know Jesus, and I still have that same feeling. Just yesterday, I got a note from someone that I had helped lead to Christ 18 years ago, and she is still walking with the Lord. Her husband is also walking with the Lord. Uh, he's kind of going in through a hard time right now. It's part of what she wrote to me about, but she, her faith is so vibrant in the Lord and beloved, I just can't tell you the joy that I felt. It's like, I don't mean to make little of her, but I kind of forgot about her. It's been 18 years ago. I've moved on with my life, and then here, boom, here comes this message from someone who 18 years ago came to Christ through uh, uh, really the ministry of both Kim and I. And oh, what joy I had when people come to know Christ, when a consumer comes to him and is transformed by him. It wants to be on mission with him. It wants to be an ambassador of his in the world. It wants other people to know about God. And surely, surely we need to have some discipline in our life of evangelism. We need to have some discipline in our lives about sharing the gospel, but mainly sharing the gospel is about the overflow of a heart that has been loved by God. It's an overflow. And any time evangelism ceases to be an overflow, something is really wrong. And probably we should pause and just spend more and more time with the Lord. When a consumer, doesn't matter what their position in the body, comes to Christ, they become an ambassador. Apologize for having you flip all over the place today, but let me have you flip again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to just read a few verses with you because I want you to see that this is a calling to every single believer and not just to the elite, if you will, that God has a joy for us in sharing his gospel with people that I really am zealous for each of us to know. So Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Everything's new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come the ultimate enduring new that will never fade away. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, and he means all believers, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, beloved, there is such amazing joy in getting over yourself, getting past yourself, really living your life centered on God to the place where you're actually willing to risk and suffer so that people outside of the Lord can have, hear the gospel and have an opportunity to come to know him and to be enfolded into the love that has enfolded you and I forever and ever and ever. And while the church, I think, is called to do things to organize for missions and to train for missions and all that, the, the, the truth of the matter is that the church is called to help people be lovers of God in Christ so that they will naturally overflow into the world. Beloved, if our love of God, if our lives are, are centered on God and if all that's in the right place, people are gonna figure out how to get evangelism done. Organization is important, but it's by far secondary. When consumers are transformed by the power of Christ, they become overflowing ambassadors. So, in summary, when we come to the cross and experience the grace of God in Christ, we are transformed into worshipers, we are transformed into contributors, we are transformed into ambassadors, and this becomes our great joy. We become people who are called and privileged to live by the great commandment and the great commission. We become people who are called and privileged to live, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love one another as he has loved us, and to love the world who so desperately needs to hear the gospel. And while the church can develop all kinds of ministries out of this foundation, please don't miss the point that this is the foundation. All the bells and whistles might be impressive, but, judge, but God will judge us by what's at the foundation. And these are the things that are at the foundation. And I pray with all of my heart, I pray that we'll see this and be content with it. I pray that we'll see what God wants out of the church and be content with that. Now, by the grace of God, Glory of Christ Fellowship was planted here in this city 11 years ago. He has been so kind to us and sustained us in so many ways. We can multiply stories all day long if we had the time and the desire to do that. God has been truly gracious to us, but I believe with all my heart that the time has come for us to be transplanted into a pot that can fit our root system, which I think is vibrant and healthy and wants to spread out and grow down. I really believe that. The details of these things are left to be worked out. But what I don't want us to miss at all is when we're transplanted, this is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church who preaches the gospel based on the word of God and inspires people to turn away from themselves toward the living God so that they can learn to love God, love others, and love this world and bring the gospel to them. So with that, let me pray. And then in the next hour, we're gonna have a, a lengthy discussion about some opportunities that are before us for this transplanting to happen in, in the near future. But for now, I just wanna pray that God will help us to stay focused on the main things. Our Father, I thank you so much for what you did in my life over the summer. I thank you for uh, confirming in my heart and in my life that I should take a few weeks to preach about these things to your people. I 
apologize to you, Father, for the ways in which I'm flawed as a man and as a preacher. I apologize to you for anything that I have said that is not pleasing to you or truly helpful to your people. I pray that you just help folks forget about that stuff and remember the things that come from you. I pray, Father, that you would take this word and nourish your people to give them eyes to see what you truly value so that we might become the church that you really want us to be. Father, teach us to be people who live lives centered upon you, not just with our words, but with our actual lives. Cause us to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ so that we will have power to know by the Holy Spirit what is the breadth and height and width and depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, please come and do things beyond what we could ask or imagine, I pray, for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, for the blessing of our cities, for the blessing of, your, of the nations, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.